double Elvis. Dear young rocker, it doesn't feel like what you thought it would feel like. Being reborn, completely blank. Everyone dreams of starting over, but no one could ever truly understand what a completely blank slate actually feels like. Having absolutely nothing there. There's no before. It feels restless, violent, and I couldn't trust myself with anything. What was true? What was safe? How to exist? There wasn't a world around me I could seem to keep hold of or hold on to long enough to decipher each second of what was happening around me. I had a plan to get back into the ripple of time from where I once came. And music seemed to be what threaded me back to myself. I had no recollection of performing my show, but some part of me still did, however disjointed I was from that person now. I just needed to retrain my brain, to remember, build up a tolerance to what I was once doing, living. I needed something to rehabilitate my brain to challenge my mind, transport me back to who I was. At first, I gave myself small tasks. Look in the fridge and try and think of one item you might need. It took some time. Oh, almond milk. Gradually, I added three things to the list, and then four, and then five, over a span of several weeks. Going into the grocery store, I never realized how much your brain works to tune out all the noise, how much stimulation it processes, so you can see straight in front of you. Colors hit your vision from every angle, sounds of screaming children, broken carts with wheels scraping on the tiled floor, the beeping of each item as it's being scanned by the cashier across the checkout line, Cash register drawers opening and closing, ringing and slamming. The sound of change being passed from one stranger's hand into another. All of that builds into an indecipherable nightmare. The grocery store became one of my biggest hurdles as I tried to get back to who I was. And so, I took baby steps, one tiny foot in front of another, through the sliding glass doors. It felt like children screaming on an airplane during takeoff. 
The sound of the jet engines and the voice of the pilot telling you to fasten your seatbelt, blaring in your left ear. And the air conditioning from the seat behind you hitting you squarely in the right ear, bombarding the other side of you. It felt like being in a war zone. Everything screaming at me, throwing loud bombs of color, sound, and light. Not quite the visual symphony you'd get on bleachers or lawns on the 4th of July. It wasn't beautiful, or a collective experience being in the grocery store with all those other people, children, sounds, and lights. It was hell. This was something that was once so peaceful to me, a twice-a-month ritual I looked forward to. I went to four different grocery stores to pick out my favorite items. After spending the day writing my list based on aisle numbers and cost analysis, gaining energy and momentum and a little high after each store before heading home to organize everything by shape, color, and how often the item was used. Now, everything felt thick, louder with each step. I was losing clarity with every inch as I stepped deeper into the grocery store. It would take weeks to be able to stand in a grocery store without the fog getting worse again. But at this moment, I gave up. I called it quits and headed home. Feeling unsteady from all the colors and sounds, I came home and decided to rest before trying again to make music. I was determined to focus on something I cared deeply about, to see if this would magically force my brain to a more functional state. Maybe if I locked myself inside my quiet house with nothing but music, I could build my tolerance to sound until I would be able to graduate to a more stimulating outside world. I was hoping the sound of the keyboard would trigger uncovered pieces of myself that were now hidden. It's difficult to explain even now how much your brain has the natural ability to just tune out the world around you, giving you the freedom and ability to navigate a space without an overwhelming amount of sound. How the ability to multitask isn't just texting a friend while talking to another friend while music plays in the background. It's as simple as walking and talking on the phone at the same time. It's sipping a glass of water in the summer heat of your apartment with your left hand, realizing you're thirsty and flipping the switch up of the ceiling fan with your right hand. It's all the little things you don't think about until you can't do them anymore. You can't process the world around you. But maybe this would help. Music was the thing that saved you once. Maybe it could save you now. And at first, it did. I pulled out my iPad. And I started with a little organ. And then a little beat. 
And then I tried to sing about what was happening. What was something I wanted to hold on to? I added another instrument, and then another, and then another, until there was around 20 tracks. By the end of the day, I was dizzy with stimulation, but excited about the progress I seemed to be making. Maybe rest and a quiet space to process was all that I needed for right now. Maybe I could do this after all. I just needed to push myself a little more. Just one more track. Just another hour. Just another vocal harmony. Just one more. I was so excited that I actually was doing it. I was doing something. If I could do this, then I could go to the grocery store. I could go back to school. It was only a matter of time. I just needed to keep pushing through and relearn how to focus on every little thing again. The fog was still there, but maybe it was becoming a little more manageable. I started to feel as if I was maybe learning how to work with the fog. I stopped pushing against it and just submitted to its power. I was working with it. I was listening to my body. I was determined to recover. And it seemed that music was the most perfect solution. I would use music and my iPad as my rehabilitation. I would make it through the fog until I could graduate to more substantial daily tasks. One more track. One more track. One more track. Just one more track. And suddenly, nothing. I pushed myself so far that I fell back into a fog, deeper than I'd been before. I didn't just go back to the first day of my concussion. I fell back into an infantile state. I couldn't process what was around me, what was happening at all. It became too difficult to speak, too difficult to move, and I didn't know what was happening to me. I sat in my room, scared and alone, for what could have been hours or even days, unable to move, unable to eat, unable to even know how to call for help. I just know that I needed help, but I didn't know what to do. And each time I realized what was happening to me, the process would start completely over. I sat starving in my bed, unable to process what to do waking up from a nightmare every 10 seconds. My memory regressed from being able to process 30 minutes at a time to now 10 seconds at a time. It was a cyclical hell I couldn't escape. I'd thought if I just kept going, 
I could break out of the fog. Instead, I had broken myself further in the process. I suddenly couldn't speak or move or know what to do. The fog went from feeling like a functional drinking habit to something so deep and far away and outside of myself that it was completely new experience with no script to guide me through. I laid in my bed for what could have been days. I didn't know how to use my phone to call for help. I didn't know how to push the buttons. I couldn't move or eat or walk or talk. It felt like what I imagined it's like to be a newborn baby, helplessly laying there, unsure of the world around you, learning how to see everything for the first time. And I don't mean that cute infantile state with babbling babies who mimic the sounds you coo at them. No, I mean the tragedy of childhood, of knowing how terrible the world around you can be and not being able to do a single thing about it because you're so small. You're nothing, sorting through the nothingness. first memory I have is laying in a bed next to my mother sleeping beside me. My grandmother came in and said, Your mother's still asleep? And you're awake all by yourself? I was only a few months old. My mother had moved back home to live with her mother in Florida for the summer after she gave birth to me. She would prop me up in a papasan chair while she gabbed and gossiped with her older sister who was tan like leather and had a laugh two pitches higher than my mother's. I remember the bond and secrets they spilled in that small Floridian bedroom, the way the light would peer through the wooden blinds as they continued to talk as if they assumed I couldn't understand them, sat like a replacement stuffed animal, propped up in a chair, a symbol of my mother's youth now gone. My mother once told me that, on the day I was born, she had gone into labor in the middle of the night after stubbornly moving herself into her apartment. She'd driven herself to the hospital after her water broke, three months ahead of schedule, only a few weeks after she'd discovered my existence during a doctor's visit. She went to the doctor to ask about a persistent belly fat that occurred with no warning a weight gain that persisted through all the fad diets she was trying. I was the bump she couldn't starve away. My mother, shaken to her core with the news of her surprise pregnancy, asked if I would survive. Yes, she'll be fine. My parents met in a jewelry store in New York after my mother took out a loan for a gold chain necklace for her boyfriend a boyfriend she would fly across the country for on bounce checks, 
waiting outside of his house in the middle of the night to surprise him, only to be surprised by his overnight guest. I'm not sure if it was out of spite or revenge, her decision to move across the country from Florida to New York, but she made the move despite her now ex-boyfriend begging her not to. I just knew. I could feel it in my gut. And when I saw him, I told him that this is my town. I'm not leaving. She was always following her gut like that. It was always so wrong, and yet incredibly right, all at the same time. Maybe it was that she knew what was right, and she always did what was wrong regardless. I never understood it. And I still try and make sense of it. How she knew what not to do, but enjoyed doing it anyways. She'd say it was doing things her way. It was how I came to be the voice of reason as a child. One she never really listened to. I wasn't sure if she subconsciously truly knew what was better for her. Or if she didn't. But she said she tried. She always tried to do what was right for me. She just never did. Trust me, just trust me. You have to trust me. She would beg. And I always knew anytime she said it that something bad was about to happen. That I should brace myself for whatever fallout there was. I would be the one to clean up all the pieces of whatever mess she'd made. Sometimes I think about it now, how it's crazy to think that you were the product of one of those poor choices. A lapse in judgment for a night. Particles created out of thin air from a single bad decision. One that was dependent upon whatever DJ was probably playing that night. I can picture it now. 90 pounds and bouncing blonde curly hair, dancing through the nightclubs in the city. My mother never compromised. If the DJ sucked that night, she would have left early. But the decision to stay until last call was determined by music. In my opinion, it was probably really bad music. When my parents first met, he didn't ask her out to dinner or to the movies or for a cup of coffee. They didn't have a real conversation until months later when they ran into each other at the nightclub. At 2 a.m., the lights in the club came on. My father asked to take my mother home. She was a party girl, a business major at the local community college downtown. She would tell me stories of partying in the nightclubs, doing blow and spending time with the mob playing cards. The mob bus was in love with her. He bought her her first car. She seemed to live in another world, so different from the one I would create for myself. There were no rules, and she commanded a room with her presence. My father saw my mother from across the club. Yo, that's the girl from the shop. He told his buddy to go home without him, not to wait up. My father somehow managed to take my mother home on New Year's Eve. My mother loves to remind me how it was the worst sex she had ever had in her whole life. 
know her well enough to know now that if there was a song she didn't like playing in a club, she would have left by then. It's impossible to not think that a single song kept them both there, and the creation of my existence hung in the balance. The creation of my life was dependent upon a song. My mother's favorite bands growing up were hair metal bands and Madonna, so I can't imagine my existence was based on necessarily a good song, but nonetheless, a song. And because the club was playing music she liked, my mother stayed, and eventually she went home with my father. They had little to nothing in common aside from the fact that they both spent time modeling. My mother did print, and my father did runway. I always loved to joke that they were both models and they somehow managed to ship me out with cheap alcohol and bad sex. I pictured her favorite song by Madonna coming on, and she decided to stay as her friends left the club one by one. She wanted to soak up every last moment of the sound and continue to live out the last of her teenage years. Her newfound freedom from her parents, dancing endlessly through the night until it was just her and my father left. Months later, she would book a doctor's appointment. I just like keep dieting and dieting and like starving myself and it just doesn't seem to go away. This little bump right here, she would explain to the doctor. The woman said nothing and quietly left the room, calling in another doctor who wheeled in an ultrasound machine and he started to scan her abdomen. He said nothing. The room was tense and silent. My mother at this point was sure she had a cancerous lump. The room was uncomfortably still. Well, what is it? What's going on? Is it cancer? Ugh, how big is the tumor? He said nothing as he turned the screen around to reveal a fully formed human. Hands and feet and a giant head moving and kicking around in her flat stomach. I'm pregnant? Ugh. How long has she been in there? Because she, she looks pretty fully fucking developed to me. Five months. You mean three, right? Three months pregnant? Nope. Definitely five. <laughs> is, she, is she okay? I've been, like, drinking and partying. She'll be fine. Just start eating and taking care of yourself and put some weight on. My mother weighed no more than 100 pounds and had never had a period in her life. And she was on birth control. At this point, she was only five months pregnant. She tried to call my father, left him tons of messages, but he seemed to be the OG fuckboy of his time, with crystal blue eyes and big brown bushy locks of curls. He was magnetic and never returned the phone calls of girls he slept with. Moving into her new apartment, lifting boxes induced my mother's labor. With her new boyfriend sleeping beside her, she got up in the middle of the night and drove herself to the hospital, speeding down the interstates hoping to make it before it was too late. She wasn't due for another three months. It was the middle of the night and there was no traffic, but there was a cop who pulled her over immediately. 
and asked her why she was speeding. Please, I'm pregnant. My water just broke. I need to go to the hospital. He looked her up and down and laughed, thinking she was making a prank. She only weighed 110 pounds at the time. She still fit into her double zero jeans. She had no bump. She had no belly. There was no sight or proof of my existence. The cop said he would follow her to the hospital and watch her check in to confirm her story, which he did. She checked herself into the hospital and waited as she went into labor, a labor that would last 32 hours, until eventually we both started to slip. Her heart rate and blood pressure started lowering, as did mine. She was going to lose me if they didn't do an emergency C-section. My heart stopped and they cut her open and pulled me out. I was born completely dead with no heartbeat. The room was completely still and silent as they tried to remove the fluid from my lungs and do tiny chest compressions on my small two pound body. Why isn't she crying? Eventually, I pulled through. After my mother gave birth to me, she spent the summer at her mother's house and then came back to New York to finish college. It wasn't for another few years that my father would find out about me through rumors and friends of friends through the grapevine. Although my mother made every attempt to tell him, he still refused to return her calls. And I guess I'm pregnant isn't really something you typically leave on someone's voicemail. When he found out over a year later, he called her immediately. Vanessa, do you have something you need to tell me? Everything my father ever said always sounded like some sort of threat. It wasn't a warm, encouraging welcome to the conversation. After he made his parents aware of the situation, they made my mother move in with them while she was in school, and they encouraged them to get married. It's funny to think about the fact that my mother also married a stranger, just for different reasons. When I married a stranger decades later, it was an act of rebellion thinking I was breaking the pattern of abuse. It's insane to think that you can try so hard to not become your parents and then make the same mistakes they made. By making these small acts of rebellion, no matter how much knowledge or thought we put into it, DNA is DNA. So my mother married a stranger and they moved in together into a tiny apartment downtown near the college. funny to think about a moment within a song when the part of the music sounds like fate that moment could only exist right then and anytime you hear that chord that melody that riff you're transported back to that moment a place in time it feels like it was made just for you it can make you fall in love 
it can make all of us feel something. It ties together with threads and strings so fragile but strong with every stitch, woven into an impossible mess of a moment that can't be explained to anyone else. It's your moment. That sound feels as if it's forever your moment. We use music to define who we are, but it also defines us. In the moments in our life, it becomes a way to time travel to the moments we lost. A glimpse of your mother singing to you in the car. She let you sit in the front seat even though you were only four years old. Smoking was still very much cool and allowed indoors. It was the 90s, the last moment in time we seemed to ignore the things that were dangerous for us. The last generation to know what outside felt like, back when MTV was still cool. My mother liked singing in cars, always off pitch, out of key, never the right lyrics. It drove me crazy, but it was something I loved about her. One of the things I remembered most. She sang loudly and fearlessly. We were living in our own world of girlhood, raising each other. Men were never at the center of it. They were always secondary characters to her, to me, to us, and the women in music that helped us get through it all. Stevie, Mariah, Brandy. Men always ended up being the villains in our story, dividing us, pitting us against each other, causing stress to one another, until we became something unrecognizable to ourselves. I could tell any time she put on Whitney Houston, she was hurt. And any time she put on Cheryl Crow, she was happy and over whatever was ailing her. Men were always a source of regret, a pit of pain. The reason I held her, falling like a puddle between my fingers, her body held in my tiny, frail arms while she wept over another mistake. We were more like sisters than mother and daughter, and more like friends than sisters. But our differences over time would become misunderstandings that would lead to a strong division in our relationship. The differences between us were apparent from the start. She sang the song Every Day's Like Sunday to me in the car, with the windows down, but not the one by Morrissey, the cover by The Pretenders. She missed every lyric and was late to every verse. But it was different when she sang a song in the car. It felt like no one else was there. And although she seemed to be singing almost a different song entirely, with every verse missing every other lyric, she also sang as if the song had been written for her, as if she was breathing life back into her lungs after the man who'd stolen her breath. The melody kept her together. The lyrics were her sacred religious text she followed. The song was the thing that she was living for, the thing that guided her back into herself whenever she was lost. Every day was like Sunday to her, 
and you could tell she felt that sadness as she gripped the steering wheel staring off into a vantage point through the glass windshield. Something far beyond anything I could see over the dash. Being so young and small and naive. But I could feel what she felt when she sang, no matter how off-key she was. My mother couldn't play any instruments. She is what some would consider musically challenged. She didn't care about song names, and sometimes she didn't even care about who the artist was. She cared about the feeling. I watched as music seemed to save her, allowed her to escape from the space she was in as we drove back home to our small house in Atlanta in 1995. We lived in a tiny brick house between two housing projects. There were police chases through our yard and gun violence across the street. She would do this little dance in the car and sing to me, poke me with her finger and move her body, dancing around in the seat while she drove. I would feel shy and embarrassed, quietly sitting there while she would beg me to dance along with her, poking me over and over and eventually telling me I was no fun. I was a very serious kid, obnoxiously so. And this seemed to be the divide. I was always focused on learning new things or trying to create something, daydreaming of the world around me while looking out the passenger side window, always thinking of the future. She was always the one dancing around the house and wanting to have fun and always living in the moment, trying to teach me how to do the same. My mother was the child, the one never noticing the world around her, the one always having fun. She filled our house with singing and music and laughter and dancing. I was the shy and serious one, the one always concerned the one following rules and plans I'd constructed on my own with no guidance. I would tell her that she was embarrassing me in the car. Just like always, she would remind me to never care what other people think. The people outside of the car, outside of our world, that we were creating, were just that. They were outside of it. And to never allow outsiders or anyone to take any joy or part of you away. People outside of our world didn't matter unless we chose to let them in. And even then, not all guests were allowed to stay. But decades later, it would be someone else taking a part of me away. It would be myself. It would be my own brain. And I was suddenly now the guest in my own life breaking into someone else's home, an identity, a passenger in my own car, finding myself over and over and over again, without my mother riding beside me as a sounding board. She would challenge me to throw dirt in the eyes of any boy who was mean to me, or spit on any girl who said something cruel about my long, curly, knotted hair. I never did any of those things. I was the timid and passive one in the relationship. 
but not having that sounding board through the new adolescence. This second adolescence meant my growth was on my own shoulders, and I could dictate how I responded to my own life. And although it felt impossible not to be relentlessly sour about my mother's constant poor decisions and bad judgment, it's impossible to deny I was created out of one of those bad decisions. It's difficult to judge her harshly for her youthful indiscretions, knowing it led me to be who I am. I end up feeling sorry for her sometimes, knowing she was also just a child who didn't know any better. She gave up her youth so that I could have mine, even though I would end up not wanting it, wasting it being so serious, not relating to youth at all. We don't always make the best decisions, especially as teenagers, but that's part of growing up. And if she had made different choices, I would have never been born. And I would have never ended up back in New York, living with another family, living out what felt like the plot of the musical, Annie. been listening to Dear Young Rocker, season four. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Titoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.